22 national championships. That's how many titles University of North Carolina women's soccer coach Anson Dorrance has won since he started coaching the team in 1979. And at any given time, his win-loss ratio hovers at around 90%. Oh, and he also guided Team USA to the 1991 Women's World Cup. As you're about to hear, Anton is someone that all coaches and all leaders can learn from. And I'm extremely pleased that he agreed to come on the show. I'm Cody Royal, and this is Where Others Won't. Anson Dorrance, thanks for joining me. How are you? I am doing very well. Thank you. If I can take you back to, to when it all started, what was the, the moment for you? When, when did you start to become kind of enamored with coaching and leadership? Because I find particularly with, uh, with sports coaches, there's generally a moment. There's you know, a, a former coach says, hey, you could do this. or It's, it's often quite non-linear. So for you, you know, what was that moment? When, when did it all start? Actually, uh, maybe I'm the exception because uh, it wasn't really a moment. Uh, I kind of uh, backed into it. Um, my dad uh, was starting a, an oil company uh, when I was in college, and uh, his dream for me to, was to be his corporate attorney. So basically the family joke at the time is if I became his oil company's corporate attorney, at least I wouldn't have a tendency to steal from my own estate. So that was the family humor. And so I felt duty bound to uh, go to law school. I, I loved my father. I admired him. I was a dutiful son. And when he uh, uh, more or less instructed uh, that uh, I needed a law degree to uh, jump in with him and help him manage uh, uh, what was going to be an extraordinary business. Uh, I didn't hesitate. So uh, my undergraduate education was directed uh, towards uh, ultimately being admitted to a law school and then becoming his corporate attorney. Um, so my life was more or less planned out. Uh, and um, so that's what I did. I finished uh, uh, my undergraduate degree at UNC. I ended up with an English and philosophy degree, which obviously is one of the angles and preparations uh, to attend law school. Uh, and uh, because I was married, I had to make a little bit of money. So I sold life insurance for a, a couple of years. And then the guy that I had played for uh, at UNC, a guy by the name of Dr. Marvin Allen, um, was retiring. And uh, he basically went in and uh, told the athletic director at the University of North Carolina that his successor uh, should be me. And uh, it was absolutely shocking because I go in to meet with the athletic director and I had absolutely no coaching resume. I had coached co-educational recreation soccer in the Rainbow Soccer League in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. So I was used to coaching, you know, young kids. Uh, I had a U10 team that I coached, a, a U14 team that I coached in the club, and then a uh, U19 team. And then I also coached and played on the senior team in this, in this rec league. So that was my coaching resume. 
and all of a sudden, uh, the athletic director at UNC uh, pulls me into his office and extends me the opportunity to coach the team I had just finished playing on. In fact, I was so young when I was extended this opportunity, I was going to be coaching guys that I had played with right. at UNC. And it was just a, it was shocking that I'd be offered this because I went from coaching at an incredibly low recreational level to the top of division one uh, at the university of North Carolina. And um, it was just a, it was just completely out of the blue. <laughs> and uh, I had no issue with it because it was going to be a part-time job. The gentleman that I had played for was a physical education instructor at the university. And so he was a part-time soccer coach. And maybe one of the reasons I got the job was because uh, uh, our budgets weren't that large uh, at the time. And maybe he was trying to figure out a way to uh, stay within uh, the budget uh, of all the uh, athletic teams at UNC. So maybe he felt hiring a part-timer was the only way that we could, you know, continue to have a men's soccer program. And uh, so uh, that was it. So I was thinking, this is incredible, but I was, I had no interest in coaching even after I was offered the job. So I started coaching the men uh, as a law student at the university. Um, and it wasn't even at UNC. Uh, uh, I didn't have the academic chops to be admitted to UNC. So I, <laughs> I went to a, a, a school in Durham called North Carolina Central University. And so I'm there at their law school and I would drive back from Durham, which is about a 20 minute ride from Chapel Hill to coach my uh, soccer team. And to make allowances for coaching, I was taking one course shy each semester. So uh, I was going into my fourth year to finish my law degree. Most people, of course, finished in three. And by this time, uh, uh, the law school at UNC, uh, obviously in cooperation with the chancellor at UNC and the athletic director allowed me to transfer into UNC. So I was finishing my law degree at UNC with only six courses to go to finish my degree. And again, the athletic director in the previous spring had taken me out on the field to watch a, a women's club team play soccer. And after I'd watched them for a while, the athletic director said, Anson, what do you think of this club team? I said, well, they're, or they're well organized. They're looks like the coach has done a nice job with his team. And, um, and he asked me, do you think this could be an effective varsity for us here at UNC? And I said, uh, I certainly think so. These girls look committed and the coach has certainly done a nice job hoping and thinking that what uh, Bill Kobe was going to do was to extend the uh, club an opportunity to become varsity and then hire the club coach whom I knew and had a lot of respect for. And uh, that's not <laughs> what his plan was. His plan was to give me the women's team now on top of the men's team, make a part-time men's coaching position full-time by having me coach both teams. And so here I was going into my fourth year of law school, uh, trying to finish my degree, and now being the head coach of the men's team and the women's team at North Carolina. <laughs> and I was you know, getting four to six hours sleep at night that fall, coaching two teams and trying to finish this law degree. And finally, uh, one day I went home and uh, told my wife that, honey, this is driving me crazy. There's no way I can handle this workload. Do you mind uh, if I drop something? And by this time, my wife could tell what I had absolutely fallen in love with. And I'm fallen in love with coaching. And um, she said, absolutely no problem. She supported me fully. And then, of course, I had to make the dreaded phone call to my father <laughs> to let him know that 
I was dropping out of law school uh, to chase this coaching thing, and he was incredibly upset with me. But to make a long story short, with time he came down, saw how much I loved it, and he made peace with it. Uh, but now all of a sudden, uh, for the next 10 years, I'm coaching the men and the women. And then from uh, 89 on, I decided to just coach the women. But obviously, that had to be navigated with my athletic director, who obviously had a bargain with me coaching two teams. And mm-hmm. the way I navigated it is that my men's assistant, he agreed to uh, become the head men's coach at UNC on an assistant coach's salary. And then he and I agreed to cut the budget in half. And it wasn't much of a budget to begin with. Um, And then all of a sudden, we're cutting it in half for the men and the women. And uh, that was the beginning of me just coaching the women full-time. And Elmar Bulovich, my men's assistant, now coaching the men full-time. And then from 89 forward, the program was split. And uh, ever since then, I've just done the women. And so this crash course that you're on all of a sudden with just coaching in general and you know obviously it's it's more than just the x's and o's and the tactics you know, what did what did you what did that look like for you where, like where did the inspiration come from and where did you draw from to power your, your own coaching and, and your own philosophy well actually to begin with it was just the x's and o's in fact to begin with uh, <clears throat> honestly i think i was rather clumsy um, because I really thought that uh, coaching uh, was X's and O's. And, of course, when you're young and uh, without any credibility or coaching success, uh, that's what you genuinely believe it is. Yep. You think it's X's and O's. Uh, so uh, back in those days, uh, you know, I treated players like chess pieces. You know, and obviously anyone that plays chess knows the queen is worth nine points, the rooks are worth five, the bishops and horses are worth three and the pawns are worth one and then as you trade through your chess game you're always you know navigating the board on whether or not this trade is worth it and obviously you base it on the way the uh, the chess pieces are weighted and so for me that's the way I started my coaching uh, and obviously when you're young uh, without any experience so you don't really have any credibility so for me uh, uh, soccer was a chess game but obviously, your evolution, if you stay in the game, is to understand it's certainly not X's and O's. That's such a, uh, a thin veneer of what your coaching is all about. It's actually about human development. It's about mm-hmm. uh, the development of leadership. It's about character development. It's about winning trust. It's about uh, being inspiring. It's about you know driving people to their potential. It's about basically these qualities that you're hoping you can inject into every player. And these are qualities you don't learn all at once, but they're qualities that you eventually decide are the most critical elements of your coaching. And what they are is trying to drive people to a a self-discipline platform, a competitive fire platform, a self-belief platform. And certainly in our game, a love of the ball, love of playing the game, love of watching the game, sort of uh, to try to drive them towards a certain grit level and then ultimately to see if they have a coachability that can also help them transcend their current level and trust you enough to get to their potential. So for me, the evolution was a long one, uh, but uh, I was a wonderful student of the game. Uh, certainly, you know, studied the masters and the masters weren't in my game. The masters were in the games that I saw around me. 
Uh, we're a basketball university. So Dean Smith, the coach of Michael Jordan, was my initial inspiration following, obviously, the guy I played for collegiately. Mm-hmm. So for me, learning about coaching was learning from the greats, uh, the ones that you know, were coaching all the great players. And I would read books by John Wooden, the UCLA men's basketball coach, and uh, I would read everything within my own culture. And since soccer wasn't really within my culture, what I was learning from were from the people that understood uh, the American sports. And those are the people that I studied at first. And only later did I actually study the game. Because I have been a student of athletics. I, there's not a sport out there I don't absolutely love. Um, and so for me, uh, growing up, I was a, an athletic dilettante. There's not a sport out there I didn't love to play. And I went to all these sort of ritzy, aristocratic schools uh, that played all these different sports. And, of course, I had to be on every team because there wasn't a sport out there I didn't like. Um, and so for me, uh, even at UNC, uh, um, my athletic education wasn't just on the soccer field. It was uh, in the intramural program. When I arrived at UNC, uh, <clears throat> I had actually transferred in from St. Mary's University in San Antonio, Texas, after one semester. And uh, what was interesting for me is when I arrived, the intramural director of Teague Dorm, the dorm I was staying in, walked into my room and and said, you know, Anson, uh, um, we're excited that uh, you're here in Teague Dorman. Just let me introduce myself. My name is Danny Newcomb. I'm the intramural director of Teague Dorman. And uh, we compete in all these different winter and spring sports. And we would love for you to jump into whatever sport you would like to participate in. And I said, well, let me look at uh, your list of winter and spring sports. And I'll tell you the ones I'd like to play on. And so he handed me this clipboard with all the sports at UNC listed on them. And I looked at all of them, and I looked back at them, and I handed him his clipboard back. I said, if you want to win, put me on every single team. (laughs) And he he thought I was joking. I wasn't joking. I play absolutely everything. And (laughs) he he started putting me on these teams, and we started to wipe out everyone on campus. And uh, uh, we started an intramural sports dynasty at Teague that lasted 11 years. Um, and there are a lot of dorms on campus, and we figured out a way to win in everything. We figured out a way to recruit. We figured out a way to basically beat everyone to death in every sport. <clears throat> in fact, uh, we had irritated the intramural uh, program so much, they tried to destroy our dynasty by cutting the dorm in half. And we convinced all the athletes to move to the same two floors, so when they cut the dorm in half, we'd be fine. And we did everything. We recruited athletes out of high school to play on our sports teams. Uh, And uh, I just loved competition. And so the way I guess I started coaching soccer was to out-compete people. And so for me, it was all about winning individual duels. It was all about figuring out ways to out-compete these other teams. And for me, my soccer education was built on a platform of my own experience. Mm And so it wasn't, you know, by studying the masters, it was by just going out there and figuring figuring out a way how to win everything, um, which has been my, I guess, my lifetime philosophy. Um, And it was only later that I started to uh, learn more about the game itself. But initially, it was all about creating 
this thing we call the competitive cauldron, which is a ranking system in practice where my athletes compete in 28 different categories and they're publicly ranked from one to 30. Uh, and the ranking is visible every single day if you come to practice. And so what would happen is my players would come to practice and the ones that were competitive, you'd all always see them sort of walk by the bulletin board just to see where they were and everything. And this cauldron, in my opinion, is one of the critical elements of our long-term success. But it, it created a sort of a, a, a mentality buzz that uh, separated us. Mm-hmm. And when I was selected to coach the U.S. Women's National Team in 1986, when I was hired, the United States had never won a game in international competition. And five years later, we were world champions mm-hmm. in the world's game. Right. And we did it in a very unique way. Uh, we didn't do it by being, you know, technically superior to our opponents or being tactically more sophisticated. Our philosophy was to play a semi-flat back one, three, four, three, and to get so fit that we could reach out and grab the other team by the throat, squeeze the air out of them and vanquish them. And we vanquished them in a way that just was unheard of in the women's game back then. Back then, uh, the women's teams were very polite. They would all play four four twos, and they would all play the ball around in the back uh, deliberately, and then eventually, of course, find a midfield player they could play the ball to, and then send a full back into the midfield to try to outnumber the midfield, and then create a two v one somewhere. Eventually, play it forward, and then have overlapping players, and then obviously serve the box or create a one v one, and then you know get a shot on goal. We didn't let anyone do that. Mm-hmm. The semi-flatback uh, 1343 actually was a couple years away. Back then, we actually played uh, two marking backs and a sweeper. We had our flank midfielders balance into the space that was open over the top since we were marking with two and sweeping with one. And then we just high-pressured every team we played against. Uh, the game I was most proud of in that World Cup run was the semi-final against Germany. Because the coach for that team was Giro Bizance, who was the director of coaching, not for the German women. He was the director of coaching for the German men. So this is the guy that coached all the Bundesliga coaches and obviously was an advisor to the national men's coaches in Germany. And uh, we beat them five to two. And it was so humiliating for him that uh, in the press conference following our semifinal victory, he made claims that we had cheated. And how did we cheat? Well, we pressed. <laughs> and, and of course, that wasn't done back in the day because to press, you had to be extraordinarily fit, certainly with three substitutions. Right. And, and uh, you had to have uh, sort of a, almost an animalistic hunger to basically hunt the ball. And we broke almost every single defensive tactical rule except the rule of energy. Um, and of course, you know, if you're a sophisticated, you know, soccer coach, and when you're seeing this, you can't see how to basically countermand it, especially if you've prided yourself on playing through the lines and now all of a sudden you're not allowed to, because of the pressure, you almost don't have a backup plan. And so for me, uh, that was a triumph of, 
nothing we had learned through uh, mentorships or through study, but I had learned on the intramural fields at the University of North Carolina trying to win everything I can, even though I couldn't play, you know, half the sports that were offered. I understand from your history growing up, you, you traveled around with, with your father and his company. And um, do, you think, do you think you clued into something there that is, is very American in terms of the competitiveness? Like, you know, obviously, you know, I coach a national program and we play against the United States quite regularly. And, and even from my background in Australia, just kind of watching the mentality um, of particularly how athletes compete and there's, there's something just very inherent. And then since moving over here and then getting into the business landscape, it's also uh, visible in the business landscape in terms of just the competitiveness of people and, and wanting to get better. And it seems to be something that's ingrained. And I, and I know this kind of philosophy didn't necessarily come from the national team per se, but it's, it's kind of weaved into American society to, to be competitive. Do you think you clued into that maybe even not knowingly? No, because uh, I was born and raised overseas. <clears throat> so I didn't know what the heck was going on in the United States, but here's what inspired me from the uh, soccer perspective. Um, <clears throat> When you're an American raised abroad, you spend your life defending American foreign policy, right or wrong. So it didn't matter what country I was living in, I was attacked for being an American. Mm -hmm. And that pissed me off. And so it didn't matter what we were doing, you know, that year in foreign policy, I completely supported it uh, just because I was being attacked. Uh, and uh, when I was given the chance to coach the U.S. Women's National Team, coaching that team for me was not an exercise in, you know, basically diplomacy. It was visceral. I was going to have revenge on every slight I had experienced overseas by beating the world at its own game. Uh, so for me, and you can talk to the players I coached, uh, uh, this motivational piece was a critical part of uh, my evolution as a coach. Um, so for me, it was, you know, having revenge on the way I was treated as a boy in India, Kenya, Ethiopia, you know, Singapore, Belgium, Switzerland. Um, it was a reaction to, uh, to that. And here's what's interesting. Uh, for years, um, because obviously soccer is a foreign game, <clears throat> I used to hide behind this, this pedigree of being born and raised overseas. Uh, but honestly, uh, I wasn't much of a soccer player coming into uh, the American colleges, but I was an athletic dilettante. I mean, uh, I was genuine when I was sharing with you. Uh, I love all sports. I just lo I love them all. I went to a small, you know, Swiss boarding school where if you had any athletic ability, you had to join every team uh, because in my senior class, there were like 25 people. Only five of us were athletic. The five of us had to do everything. We had to play tennis. We had to, you know, join the ski team. We had to, you know, play soccer. We had to play basketball. I mean, um, there wasn't a sport on the campus that all five of us didn't have to play just in order for us to compete. Um, so this this sort of eclectic, you know, athletic background for me was a real one. 
And the other thing that was important for me growing up is we moved every three years. Every three years, my my dad was transferred. And what was really cool about that for me as a young boy is as soon as I arrived in a different location, I would jump into the local sports scene. So when I jumped into uh, the Singapore sports scene, of course, part of that was badminton. So I became an extraordinary badminton player just from, you know, playing with these frigging Southeast Asian pros. Um, and it didn't matter what culture I jumped into, all of a sudden I would start to learn the nuances of their sports. And I did start playing soccer in Ethiopia as a young boy, but I wasn't any good. But once I got to college, I decided, you know, this was going to be my sport. And I spent a lot of time working on it and gradually became better. But when I came into UNC, I was actually a better rugby player and cricketer than I was a soccer player because, of course, um, soccer was for the lower classes. I was an aristocrat, so the sports I played growing up were the sports the aristocrats played, like rugby, like cricket, yep. um, and obviously tennis and you know all these other you know country club sports. Um, so for me, uh, I didn't really uh, learn the American competitive spirit, but I certainly had something uh, because um, I never backed down. <laughs> into any sort of debate with anyone uh, around me in any country in the world. In fact, uh, you'll appreciate this being an Australian. Um, a lot of the places I lived were former British colonies. Mm-hmm. And uh, I used to remind these arrogant little Brits that we had defeated them in a war, which none of them could fathom. Um, <laughs> they didn't believe it. I mean, they just basically denied it. And, uh, then I would, you know, bring proof. I'd find an, an Encyclopedia Britannica, perfectly named, by the way, when I'm involved in these debates, and demonstrate to them, yes, you little snot, you know, we beat you, you know, in the Revolutionary War, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So for me, um, I was growing into this uh, this verbal debater and, you know, irascible competitor in all the places I lived. And it wasn't from being in the United States. It was being from outside of the United States and defending myself um, and never wanted to back down from a fight. Um, I ended up deciding that, you know, fighting was my middle name and uh, I would get into a a fight at the drop of a hat. Um, So for me, it was just um, survival. And so it was only later in my coaching career that I started to really study the game and started studying it from the masters uh, and, uh, it was sort of interesting because when we first qualified for the women's world cup in 1991, it was in Haiti. And what was really interesting is it was stunning how we qualified. We outscored five opponents by the combined score of 49 to zero. And um, everyone was stunned at our performance because obviously Haitians knew that there was nothing in the United States culture that would have predicted this sort of domination. Mm-hmm. Um, so the press conference was a really interesting one for me because uh, up until that moment, and this is, uh, I guess it was, yeah, it was 91 qualifying, uh, World Cup qualifying in Haiti. And um, the Haitian press corps was just all over me. They couldn't believe what they had just seen. So they started asking me these questions, you know, uh, what do you guys do in training? And I would share some of the stuff we did in training and that didn't convince them of anything. And then someone would say, well, uh, 
uh, your, your players, you know, trained in foreign countries. Uh, and I said, no, most of them come from American colleges. And then someone else asked, well, were they trained by foreign coaches? And what they're trying to get at is they saw this incredible juggernaut of a soccer team, and they're trying to figure out what explained it. And finally, this guy says, you know, well, coach, you know, uh, what's your background? I said, well, I was born in Bombay, India. At the age of uh, uh, three, we, I, we moved to Calcutta, and from there to Nairobi, Kenya. And after three years in Nairobi, we moved to Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. And all of a sudden, for the first time, and it didn't matter what I had said earlier, no one was writing anything down. All of a sudden, I see all these heads drop, and now they're in their notebooks writing down my foreign pedigree. And I finished up the litany of the other places I lived. And then from there, we moved to uh, Singapore, Malaysia, from there to Brussels, Belgium. And while my family was in Brussels, I was sent to a Swiss boarding school. But this is the first time I ever felt confident enough to share the truth about my soccer background. I said, but I learned how to play soccer at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And I learned how to coach soccer from the U.S. soccer coaching schools and from the annual convention of the NSCAA, which is our coaching association. And uh, it was, this is the first time I owned up to the fact that uh, um, I didn't know anything really until I came to the United States. And I learned the game as an American in an American college. And I learned how to coach the game from the American coaching schools and from the American uh, coaching association that held conventions where they, we did clinics on how to coach the game. <clears throat> and later that year, after we had won the world championship, I went around the country telling people I was proud to be an American, proud to be a product of our coaching system, and proud to be a world champion. And uh, for me, this was a visceral revenge on the way I was treated. To beat the world at its own game for me was immensely satisfying. And uh, the kids that, uh, uh, <laughs> that won this with us were also kids that, you know, we, we didn't really get to train that much together. So we didn't have this extraordinary, you know, possessional platform. But mm -hmm. here's what we were. We were a collection of frigging street fighters that had an amazing mentality to compete. And we were really good one-on-one. -on -one. Why were we good one-on-one? -on -one? Because we couldn't get together to train. So what were my training platforms for my girls? Well, I told them to play one-on-one -on -one every day. And if you can, play against a guy. So all my girls were playing against their boyfriends, essentially, uh, because very few girls sort of enjoy the 1v1 combative experience of playing 1v1. And so uh, for me, that was it. It was, it was dueling. You play 1v1, uh, all kinds of positive things happen from the 1v1 duel. First of all, you do learn how to beat people one-on-one. -on -one. The second thing is you learn how to defend against people one-on-one. -on -one. And the third thing is you develop a hardness that, you know, that are as hard as diamonds in terms of your mentality. So even to this day, if you saw, you know, the games in the recent uh, Women's World Cup, the thing that separated us was mentality. The French were better. The French were better. But they didn't have our mentality. So what still exists? And the DNA of the American female national team player is this mentality that uh, we began in 1986 when we started training them to take on the world. And that's what separates us because the Japanese are more technical. The Germans are more tactical. 
the French are more complete in every way, technically and tactically. <clears throat> and their clubs are better. Lyon is easily the best club in the world. So their club experiences are better than ours. But the thing that no one can match yet is the American mentality. And I know when that was born, it was born when we reached out to beat everyone to death in their own game by playing the game a different way. Because trust me, if I had done the traditional methodology of studying the masters, we also would have played a 4-4-2. We also would have let Germany pass the ball around in the back until everyone's so bored to death, they'll finally <laughs> allow a forward pass into midfield. And so uh, for me, <clears throat> what started us off is not uh, learning from the masters of the game, but learning from, you're right, what's uniquely American, uh, which is what you're touching on, which is this this competitive mentality. Because I learned that, you know, watching Dean Smith and his practices, because everything was recorded in his practices. And I was thinking, my gosh, would I love to play in this environment. I love being evaluated on winning and losing in practice. Because yeah. that's the way I spent my athletic life. And I, I can speak to even the power in the us against the world mentality, because that is what is ingrained in our culture in Australia. And it shows up in our results as well. And, and for us, it's the, the desert Island in the middle of the ocean that has 24 million people, but can still churn out tour de France winners and, you know, Grand Prix drivers and, and all these different things. And there is tremendous power in that. And to kind of flip this on its head a little bit is that's very rare for, for America to be in that position as well. Um, and you're right. Uh, you know, I, I did watch a lot of the world cup. I was over in Europe. I was in the UK and, um, it, it showed up that mentality that you were talking about. You can absolutely see it on the pitch still to this day amongst the American women's team. And this is what uh, I love about the Australians because believe it or not, <clears throat> the Australians have an extraordinary mentality too. We know this, which is why if you go back to 2015, and watch our game with Australia, even though we were world champions that year, the Australians completely outplayed us in the first half, and they did it with their mentality, and we were lucky to win that game. I remember back to that game, because what I'm thinking is, yep, <laughs> they have our mentality. Hmm. And the only reason we're able to overwhelm them eventually is because our population that plays the game just dwarfs theirs. So our average athlete is superior, but not our mentality. So I understand exactly what you're saying. And I appreciate the fact that you absolutely get what I'm telling you. I heard you do a presentation recently where you were talking about culture development and kind of your, your shift towards really fostering that. And, you know, a couple of things came up that I'd love to ask you about, because again, there's going to be a lot of overlap, but particularly the idea around the, the Kelly Muldoon Award. Do you still do that? Absolutely. In fact, uh, the biggest transition for me in terms of character was figuring out how to create it. Uh, right. And I'm not one of these people that, you know, looks at everything I'm doing thinking, God, this is incredibly good. No, I look at everything I'm doing thinking, holy crap, there must be something better than this. And so uh, the problem with uh, the success we've had is that, in a way, it almost tells you not to change anything because you're thinking, my gosh, if I change this, maybe that's the, the secret sauce. 
So all of a sudden, the trouble with success is you're almost obligated to keep imitating everything, even though you know that a lot of the stuff you're doing isn't worth a damn, and you're surviving because of this or that or the other thing. So I don't, you know, every year I didn't know what to throw out. But one thing I didn't know is um, I knew I wasn't doing a very good job with my leadership development of my players. Um, and I had tried everything under the sun to develop leadership and develop character and everything else. And, and, uh, every time I'm <laughs> go full circle with it, I come back and, um, uh, even though I do more speaking and leadership environments than almost any soccer coach alive, I don't think you can teach leadership. And why don't I think you can teach leadership? Because I think I've constantly failed at it every single year I've been coaching. Um, and then finally, I stumbled on something that uh, uh, has completely reshaped at least my character development platform. And it comes down to what you were talking about earlier, which is the Kelly Muldoon thing. And here's what it is. Um, I, you know, probably like you, I read every business book that hits the bestseller list. And so, you know, I've read, you know, good to great, the, you know, successful habits, you know, the seven habits of highly success. I mean, you name the book, the business book, if it's hit the bestseller list, I've probably read it. Yep, me too. And I'm looking at all these things and, um, and what they're telling me, and I, I believe them. And these are obviously brilliant men uh, that have been incredibly successful and, and uh, I do believe them. And what they're telling me is that uh, um, having a successful culture uh, boils down to living a set of core values. And of course, <clears throat> I would have these core values that looking back are so cliched. They're not the least bit inspirational, but I had them all, you know, we work hard or we don't whine or whatever. And uh, I'm reading these things thinking, this is ridiculous. You can't just make a statement and have that change your culture just because you list it on your door about what your mission statement is or what your core values are. <clears throat> And all these different things I had tried, you know, failed absolutely. And uh, <laughs> I'm not one of these people that, you know, has any delusions of grandeur. So trust me, the first one to criticize me is me. <laughs> I mean, so half the stuff we were doing, you know, was an absolute crock. Um, and all of a sudden I'm reading and, uh, and, you know, God bless this because I do a lot of reading. And I think ultimately I was saved by it. And I'm reading in the New York Times Magazine one day about uh, this Columbia graduate student that's going to Columbia to study Russian literature and Russian poetry. And she tells the story of she gets there and just before she got there, uh, Columbia hires this Russian exile poet by the name of Joseph Brodsky. And... Uh, all the PhD candidates and master's candidates meet with Brodsky and he basically assigns them all this Russian literature and Russian poetry to memorize. And she's looking at this going, Oh my gosh, I don't think this, this, this guy understands that this is Columbia. This is one of the top academic institutions in the United States. And I don't think this Russian understands um, who he's dealing with here, the caliber of student that he's given because this memorizing poetry stuff is what we did in elementary school. And I think we have to go in there and let him know that he doesn't know the caliber of the student that he's dealing with. And so of course they all go, you know, 
stomping into his office and basically saying, you know, Professor Brodsky, I'm sorry, but um, this isn't something that uh, we're expected to do. We are uh, the best of the best in American higher education, and and this is not going to serve our degrees well. So uh, this has to change. We basically refuse to do this. And so basically, Professor Brodsky comes back and says, well, if you guys don't memorize any of this stuff, none of you guys get your master's and PhDs. And so they went out of the office with their tails firmly between their legs and got to work. Hmm. And then this woman is telling us in this article in the New York Times how it absolutely transformed her. She said for the first time, she had a, an intimate appreciation for the culture she was studying just through memorizing it. It transformed her cerebral fabric and her appreciation and respect for Russian literature and Russian poetry. It completely changed what she would write about in their discussions with the other students that had also memorized reams of Russian poetry and Russian literature. They could almost feel the culture that they had never really felt before by looking at and attacking it just uh, intellectually. The memorization just transformed them. So I'm thinking, well, you know what? Nothing else I had done worked. We're going to take all our core values and I'm going to find a motion, motivational quote and all my kids are going to memorize these motivational quotes. And then to sort of drill this home, uh, not only are we going to memorize these quotes, but they're going to recite them publicly in front of me. And then we're going to evaluate each other against these core values to see if people are living them. And then, yes, what we're going to do in our annual banquets is, yes, we're going to give out an MVP award. It's not going to be the highest award. The largest trophy that we're going to extend and the most uh, noble trophy is the Kelly Muldoon uh, Award for Character. And it was transformational. And for years, actually, before we started giving out the award, uh, um, we would collect all this data when everyone re would be evaluating each other against the core value values and whether or not people were living them. And for years, when I would have a ranking of these players' character, I was so reluctant to share with my players uh, what everyone's opinion of their character was because I was just so afraid that one would jump off a bridge. And then, honestly, there was this one girl I was hoping would jump off a bridge, so I shared with her what her teammates thought of her. And all of a sudden, I could sense that she was just stunned at her character evaluation. And now I'm actually getting a little bit worried. I, you know, I shouldn't have shared this with her. And I said, well, Mary, uh, are you glad I shared this with you? And in a very low voice, she said, uh, yes. And I said, why? She said, because I have to change. And then her change was transformational. Uh, at every... Uh, athletic banquet in the spring at the end of the season. We allow all the seniors to make a final address. We don't basically uh, censor their address. They can say anything they want. We're just holding them to a certain time limit. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden this girl in her senior address talked about this transformation that she had made after seeing what her teammates thought of her. And it's one of the greatest speeches we've ever heard. And it was about the evolution of her character. So now this stuff does really work. And obviously I don't know how to apply it in business because you can't in the business world, you know, have everyone memorize these quotations that we can obviously ask our kids to memorize. But I'll tell you this, here's what I've learned. I've learned that all of us come from different backgrounds, 
And we all have sort of a different set of uh, principles that we live by. And one of the hardest things to do when you're creating your own culture is one of the things you run into consistently is everyone's background is different. So how do you get them to collaborate on agreeing to a certain way to behave and act and, and think and support and care and basically love? How do you change that? Well, this is what changes it because then when they all come together, what you're asking them to do by joining your culture is to sign off on all these core values. And then uh, the leaders not only have to decide whether or not to keep this core value every year, because we allow them to change any core value they want and to find a different quote anytime they want, but then they're expected to, to live them. And the ones that don't live them, there's a black line in our core value evaluations where, uh, if you give someone a four, they're an extraordinary example of this core value. If you give them a three, they live this core value most of the time. If you give them a two, they live this core value occasionally. If you give them a one, they live this core value rarely. If they're below a 3.0, I try to get that person to transfer if they're on scholarship. And if they're not on scholarship, I try to get them to quit. And so this is the best thing we've ever done with our culture because the culture is extraordinarily consistent. And I attribute it to uh, this Kelly Muldoon award, but also to memorizing the things that we believe are the proper ways to live your life. And uh, it has been transformational. And so the two most powerful, I guess, rods in our nuclear arsenal are the competitive cauldron and the core values. That's fantastic. And why I resonate with that so much is that we have the same thing. Uh, we, we, we did away with our MVP in fact, and we just have what we call the bloods award. So we, we've even nicknamed ourselves something different. Uh, that's, that's not actually our nickname. And it was to create this kind of unique culture amongst ourselves where we only look after ourselves. And so after, uh, every game that we play, all the players and all the coaches get to vote, you know, five, four, three, two, one, similar kind of ranking system based on the the game day. So, you know, who's exemplified the core values on the game day so that, you know what, if you want to just, if you want to vote on pregame and people that are still living, you know, during the, those values during the warm up. You know, you can vote however you want, but you don't necessarily need to give it to the top goal scorer or it's who's exemplified the whole thing. Who helped someone else get their bag off the bus? Could be anything. And I love that. I absolutely love that. That is so cool. And to your point, Anson, completely transformational um, and has actually made us go further into it. And, you know, we've offloaded our discipline onto our leadership group. So, you know, if, if someone messes up when we're at our international cup, so, you know, 20 odd countries go down to Australia and play a, a, a world cup style tournament for Aussie rules. And you know what, it's a, it's a bunch of amateur athletes in a, in a country um, away from home on their own. And, and so if they mess up against team rules, it's not for me to kind of dish out any punishment. They report into the rest of the team and it's kind of, it's transformed a lot of, everything that we do 
and taken away a lot of hierarchy and yeah I, that's why when i when i heard you talk about that i was like oh this is fantastic because i've seen the power of this as well and and we've had it in our program since 2012 and uh, i attribute a lot of our success to that well let me ask you this because this is intriguing for me so what you do is after the game do they do it uh through a computer program or how do you guys do it yeah so we've set up a little spreadsheet that they can just enter and then we just uh tabulate it on the back end it all feeds into a spreadsheet so after every time you play a competitive match that's what uh, you guys do Mm -hmm. and is it just the players or do the coaches jump in because we just have the players do it do you just have them do it we we have both players and coaches Okay. Um, just because, yeah, I, I'm really interested in, in the whole gamut, like what everyone on the, on the team sees um, okay. and, and what everyone's paying attention to. Do you also bring in like the trainers and the physios and the managers or just the uh, coaches and the team? We've just done the coaches and the team. And the reason for that okay. is just that our trainers, again, we – we don't have huge budgets and so they would tend to be in Australia. So they haven't necessarily spent so much time you know, learning the values. Um, I'd love to get it to the point where everyone involved with the, the program does it. But again, just those different perspectives and, and the little things that different people will pick up on. And those, you know, the, the interactions is what it's really about. How, how do we moderate our own behaviors? And, and I've sure. found that that's not just a, a coaching thing. That's an everyone thing. You know, how are the players talking to the physios? How are, the, how are they talking to the trainers, the, the water boys, everyone that they come into contact with? Like our, our brand and our values should show up in all those interactions, not just, you know, how you're conducting yourself, um, you know, between the two hours that we play our games. So I'd love to get that it to that point. That's really cool. I love that. I love that. Because one thing that I really liked last year, <clears throat> we had a nice run last year. And a part of the team were our trainers. We had these young trainers that were so bought into the team, they felt like they were part of the team. And it was the coolest thing. And now I want to try to figure out a way to replicate that. I'm hoping it wasn't just because of a, these three special uh, young women we had. Uh, because I absolutely loved it. I mean, they really cared about caring for my kids and um yeah because i'm thinking uh maybe there's a way i can pull them in because you're right ideally it's everyone and again you know once you kind of disseminate the I, i don't i'm using the wrong word here but discipline but you know once you kind of everyone understands it and everyone can um, monitor those behaviors you can also pull it up or you know realize when something's wrong so you know right, if someone right. is acting slightly differently or, or you know off your core values you can anyone on the team can pull them aside and say hey you're okay and and you can kind of moderate each other's behavior including me as the coach you know people can pull me aside hey you know you're out of line then or you need to go on you know this this and this um and so it it, yeah, it just helps create a, a flow of information across the entire organization that I just love. Like I'm just in love with the process now more than anything. Um, but it, it's certainly not, it's taken a long time to, to get us to that point. I like that. I like that. Well, uh, I might be stealing this from you. I think this is fantastic. Amazing. Well, I'm going to come down for a visit. Uh, I've got uh, family in uh, Raleigh. 
So we'll uh, maybe we can grab a coffee and we'll <laughs> we can talk about it some more. Absolutely. Well, please uh, come down during a game, and uh, uh, we'd love to host you. So uh, let us know. If you're interested in following Anson and the team, they're chasing an ACC title and another national championship through October, November, and into early December 2019. To follow the team, visit goheels.com or follow UNC Women's Soccer on Twitter.